0: It's been a really long time since I've been on Anchor, about two years to be exact, and I am back to start practicing my narration again, just to get back regular. I'm getting more work, I'm wanting more work, and I definitely need to practice. So I'm going to be trying to log on every day, even if I practice for five minutes, I'm going to grab a script that I've never seen before and just go through it. So that's my goal. dark spruce forest frowned on either side of the frozen waterway. The trees had been stripped by a recent wind of their white covering of frost, and they seemed to lean towards each other, black and ominous, in the fading light. A vast silence reigned over the land. The land itself was a desolation, lifeless, without movement, so lone and cold that the spirit of it was even that of sadness. There was a hint of it in there was a hint in it of laughter, but of a laughter more terrible than any sadness. A laughter that was mirthless as the smile of a sphinx, a laughter cold as the frost and partaking of the grimness of infallibility. It was the masterful and incommunicable wisdom of eternity laughing at the futile life and the effort of life. It was the wild, the savage frozen-hearted Northland wild. But there was life, abroad in the land and defiant. Down the frozen waterway toiled a string of wolfish dogs. Their bristly fur was rimmed with frost. Their breath froze in the air as if it left their mouths, spouting forth in spumes spew- in of vapor that settled upon the hair of their, d- their bodies and formed into crystals of frost. Leather harness was on the dogs, and their leather traces attached them to a sled which dragged along behind. The sled was without runners. It was made of stout birch bark, and its full surface rested on the snow. The front end of the sled was turned up, like a scroll, in order to force down and under the bore of soft snow that surged like a wave before it. On the sled, securely lashed, was a long and narrow oblong box. There were other things on the sled, blankets, an ax, and a coffee pot and frying pan, but prominent, occupying most of the space, was the long and narrow oblong box. In advance of the dogs, on wide snowshoes toiled a man. At the rear of the sled toiled a second man. On the sled, in the box, "'lay a third man whose toil was over, "'a man whom the wild had conquered and beaten down "'until he would never move nor struggle again. "'It is not the way of the wild to like movement. "'Life is an offense to it, for life is movement, "'and the wild aims always to destroy movement. "'It freezes the water to prevent it running to the sea. "'It drives the sap out of trees "'till they are frozen to their mighty hearts.' And most ferociously and terrible of all does the wild harry and crush into submissive man, man who is the most restless of life, ever in revolt against the dictum that all movement must, in the end, come to cessation of movement. But at front and rear, unawed and indomitable, toiled the two men who were not yet dead. Their bodies were covered with fur and soft-tan leather. Eyelashes and cheeks and lips were so coated with the crystals from their frozen breath that their faces were not discernible. This gave them the seemingly—this gave them the seeming of ghostly masks, undertakers in spectral world at the funeral of some ghost. But under it all they were men, penetrating the land of desolation and mockery and silence, puny adventurers bent on colossal adventure pity themselves against the might of a world as remote and alien, as pulseless as the abyss of space. They traveled on without speech, saving their breath for the work of their bodies. On every side was the silence, pressing upon them with a tangible presence. It affected their minds as the many atmospheres of deep water affect the water of the diver. It crushed them with the weight of unending vastness and unalterable degree. It crushed them into the remoteness it crushed them into the remotest recesses of their own minds, pressing out of them like juices from the grape, all the false ardors and exaltations and undue self-values of the human soul, until they perceived themselves finite and small, specks and motes, moving with weak cunning and little wisdom amidst the play and interplay of the great blind elements and forces. An hour went by, and a second hour. The pale light of the short sunless day was beginning to fade, when a faint far cry arose on the still air. It soared upon with a swift rush till it reached its topmost note, where it persisted, palpitant and tense, and then slowly died away. It might have been a lost soul wailing, had it not been invested with a certain sad fierceness and hungry eagerness. The front man turned his head until his eyes met the eyes of the man behind, and then across the narrow oblong box each nodded to the other. A second cry arose, piercing the silence with a needle-like shrillness. Both men located the sound. It was to the rear, somewhere in the snow expanse they had just traversed. A third and answering cry arose, also to the rear, and to the left of the second cry. "'They're after us, Bill,' said the man at the front. His voice sounded hoarse and unreal, and he had spoken with an apparent effort. "'Meat is scarce,' answered his comrade. "'I ain't seen a rabbit sign for days.' "'Thereafter they spoke no more.' though their ears were taken for the hunting cries that continued to rise behind them. At the fall of darkness they swung the dogs into a cluster of spruce trees on the edge of the waterway and made a camp. The coffin at the side of the fire served for seat and table. The wolf dogs, clustered on the far side of the fire, snarled and bickered among themselves, but evinced no inclination to stray off into the darkness.